right, what's up, everyone? This is the Bibliotheques Podcast. Welcome back. Welcome in. If you're new today, Cody and I are continuing our discussion and recap of Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Cody, how did this section of reading hit you, especially following the very, let's just call it intense section we read last week? I'm feeling desensitized, Paul. I don't know about you, but I was like, you know, bracing myself for this section's reading. And it's not like it wasn't upsetting at parts. It very much was, but we got thrown into the fire last week. And so I felt like this week was, you know, it was interesting. It was it was definitely violent. It was definitely upsetting, but it seemed almost more like themes were kind of falling into place, if that makes sense. Couldn't agree more. I think your point about the themes, I was like, I'm I feel like I'm starting to kind of get what this book is at this point. And and your point is about being desensitized to things took the words right out of my mouth because I'm reading this and I'm just waiting for like another crazy, gruesome battle scene to come up like we had last section. And we don't really get one the same way this week. So spoiler alert there. Sorry, folks. Um, Yeah. Sorry if you were tuning in for like genocide. uh, Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Maybe pick a different podcast. I, I don't know. But to your point about being kind of desensitized, there are plenty of things in this section of reading that are just god awful still. Oh, yeah. Like, it's not like we're losing a lot of just the horrible acts and behavior and all like so terrible stuff. But like you said, I'm just kind of going through this and I'm like, all right. Yep. So another person dead, meaningless killing. Just crazy, you know. Oh, yeah. Just check it off the list. That's what I was doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, folks. Yeah. I did a little pantomiming. <laughs> I was confused. I was like, are we... On wait, our hold audio up, only <laughs> medium. Yeah. Are we, are we stopping here for a second? No. Okay, cool. So so this week, Cody, um, we're moving the story along a little bit. We're getting to know our characters a little bit better, I think. Before we get into chapters... For today, last week I said we're going to be reading chapters 6 through 11. We're actually reading chapters 6 through 10 today. So apologies, but extra credit if you're reading along and went ahead. Good for you. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Gold star. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So chapters 6 through 10 today. Last week, super brief recap. We met our main character uh, who doesn't have a name, just referred to as The Kid, this guy runs away from his dad, never had a mom, kind of ends up in a bunch of odd jobs, is constantly fighting people, burning hotels down. He is not a stranger to, as it says in the early, like the very first page of this book, meaningless violence, has a bunch of run-ins with kind of odd characters throughout our first, first section of reading. But really, that whole first section kind of comes to its climax when he joins this group of, I don't know, Cody, how did we describe him last week? Like, unsanctioned war criminals? Yeah, there's this like rogue band of U.S. Army soldiers that have been like apparently okayed to go raid Mexican villages. Right. So on the way to do this, they are 
set upon by a war band of Native Americans and get their shit rocked in a very gruesome way. Somehow, the kid survives, walks off with this other dude. They end up making it to this Mexican town where they find the head of their captain pickled in a jar now. The other guy that he is with is dead. He gets thrown in jail, taken to Chihuahua City in Mexico, thrown in a different jail. And that's where we pick up with our story today. So chapter six, our section immediately ends with him recognizing an unknown uh, figure. And uh, chapter six is uh, letting us know that it's our old friend Toad Vine. Toad Vine, who he burned a hotel with and, you know, beat up a couple of bar guys. This was all after they got in like a bloody, muddy knife fight after mm-hmm. drinking all day. The scene described in the prison cell is basically when you go to the zoo and you see like the chimpanzee cage. It's like a bunch of guys in rags, like scratching themselves, <laughs> which, you know, we got to take the levity where we can find it in this book. I laughed. <laughs> um, <laughs> I. <laughs> I did not. I don't think I saw the humor. I think I was uh, a little still just kind of traumatized and, you know, tiptoeing through this story at that point, Cody. But it's funny to hear you describe oh, it I took that many way. days off from the reading. <laughs> I put the book down after I, we were like, we did our decided end and I was like, whew, cool down. So I picked it back up and you're like, and it's almost like McCarthy's like, get a load of these guys. <laughs> In the prison. <laughs> what a sorry sight. So I, I'll add this here because like you said, Cody, I mean, they're described, you know, verbatim as being like apes. You know, they're living in their own waste. They're picking and scratching themselves described as animals in cages. Right. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we were talking about at the end of last week is how Cormac McCarthy is doing all of this in third person. And one of the things that I was struggling with when what I said made me uncomfortable was his description of these native warriors, right? Who, (laughs) and describing them with very, very charged language in present day, especially referring to them as savages, uh, heathens, that, that kind of thing. And wondering like, okay, you're doing this in the third person. What's going on with this? Okay. So, One thing I just want to say here, what I think Cormac McCarthy is starting to lean into now is like everyone we run into in this story, regardless of what color their skin is or what nation they come from, they can be described in this way. And so part of what I, you know, you don't ever want to describe a human being as being a savage, but there's room for that when they are behaving in a way, when they're murdering other people, torturing people, living in their own filth. So I think that was to your point last week, what you were talking about, some of this creative license, right? So everybody's getting some from from McCarthy here. It's not, you know, it's not all just like race-based from the perspective of a white guy looking at what's going on here. Yeah, and I actually want to... I'll I'll bring it up at the end of this chapter, but I want to continue that because uh, I did make a point that really echoes what you're saying. Um, totally, I think but, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so we get to uh, see kind of the situation that they're in. They're basically been assigned to a chain gang. You know, they're cleaning up gutters. 
uh, you can tell that they're kind of eyeballing the guards and sizing them up. And it really doesn't make sense for them to try and escape. These guards are very well armed. They have uh, the um, you know old timey equivalent of like shotguns and they have whips that they are not afraid to use. They identify one specifically because he has either like a brass or a gold tooth. We learn that one man with them is a veteran of the Mexican-American War from Kentucky. He's got some pretty crazy stories about the war, uses some pretty descriptive imagery from McCarthy, talking about like, you know, the Mexican army had solid copper cannonballs, which when they came across the field, he described them as like small rolling suns that you had to avoid. Like, just imagine how hot those would get. Like, I'm sure normal cannonballs were already very hot, but there's something about him being like copper, like that orange bright metal really stuck out in my mind. I was like, God, that would suck so bad. (laughs) That's crazy. Um, And, you know, we get more kind of of these anecdotal descriptions of the native people in the Mexican U.S. border committing really brutal acts of, you know, of Harmagon people. Like one man was forced to walk in the desert without any clothes and they cut the bottoms of his feet off, which is just, you know, horrifying and made me cringe in my chair as I was reading it. They're eating their Sunday meal of like really tough bull meat. And the kid talks about, you know, how this, we learn it is a um, group of Comanche um, Native Americans fell on his unit. Um, the veteran basically acknowledges and is like, yep, yep, that all that kind of tracks with what I know and what I've been telling you. And, you know, he also talks about like, you know, we're all kind of doing this to each other. Americans are also selling scalps up in Durango. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting because like the kid is kind of like talks about this terrible thing that happened to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, everyone's doing it all the time. And that's when, you know, it kind of confirms that we were talking about like, they went out there to do that, you know? It just happened to them because they got outnumbered and outmanned. So Yeah, and I I don't I'm I'm I apologize in advance if this sounds insensitive, I guess, but like this to me, it said so matter of factly mm-hmm. so much of the time in the book. Like you wouldn't think that the guys who are talking about these horror stories are like traumatized to their bones about this. It almost reads like a welcome to the league story yeah where it's like oh you were set upon and like your whole group was slaughtered by the opposing group in this wasteland welcome to the big show dude this is what exactly everyone's doing everyone and then we get so one day on their chain gang they see this kind of group sauntering into town and it's like this is what I was talking about. I said we were going to want to put a pin in what you were saying because none of them are Native American, but they are described in the exact same language that was used to describe them during their acts of, you know, like we said, quote unquote, savagery. They're described as like this barbarian. And I use that word very intentionally because it's pretty much just like a cut and paste word that some version of exists in every culture to describe like an other like a scary other it's like the when you don't understand their language when you don't understand why they do the things they do that's barbaric but that it's an it's an actual word used in the in the passage here too i mean de- described as bearded and barbarous that's like, right that and i mean that that's what we're talking about they're yeah. wearing human parts as trophies and these are you know white and black and um mexican folk who are 
doing this. It's not just the Native American groups. And so this kind of like hit me in a couple ways. One, just kind of like you said, the universality, like the welcome to the league type thing where like he's saying like, yeah, that happens all the time. And then there's no coincidence that the very next day these guys show up. And it's basically like if you're looking at like, like the pros, like these guys know how to survive out here and do the kind of violence that's almost like necessary. Mm-hmm. And like not in like a necessary, like more of like, like a physical survival. And also, you know, that language of like, you know, savagery, barbarism, it mm-hmm. really just is almost used to fill in the gaps in people's brains when something, when like people or a group in another culture that we don't understand and don't, ha- and like kind of have the, when, when we have this kind of like ignorance to us where we are like, afraid of another we go to those terms mm-hmm. and it's, it's a natural thing and when it's used to describe in that attack on uh the kids unit it's out of like fear it's like look what they're doing to us he doesn't have other words to describe it it's like a and just like how the acts are very primal the reaction and description of it as charged as it is like you said is a very like unfortunately normal way to respond to those things yeah and one other thing about this group that just rode past the kids chain gang, at least from what I can was picking up from the reading, Cody, you used the word pros, and I think that that's a you know a fine description for them because they are unfortunately like professional murderers. Yes, um, that's what they do. But there's nothing in this description of them that's like any sort of glorification of the profession Mm -mm. or making them appear to be like you know the moral high ground in Mm -hmm. any way or anything like that like everything Mm -hmm. here it's very similar to what we read before to your point you know like we're playing on the same plane here yeah and you know they're going to be described throughout the rest of this chapter as hunters which is again like McCarthy is very intentionally using the actions of men and specifically men and trying to trigger that like animal quality to it across, you know, all colors of skin, all cultures. He's really trying to hone in and make you think of like how animal like this behavior is. And there's one thing I noticed that like, you know, they're really not, he's really not describing women this way at all. Every time a woman comes into the frame, it's with even in later in times, like it's in generous terms or the, at least generous in compared to how he's describing every guy in this book. Yeah, I mean, we haven't come up on a, you know, a band of women who are running around scalping people yet. So I'll hold my right. breath for that. But yeah. So the leader of this party is a guy called the judge. We will remember him from earlier in this book. And this will make sense because, you know, he does look at the kid and like it is mentioned that he almost smiles as if to recognize him. Um, they're looking uh, for people to, you know, unfortunately go find Native Americans and kill them. They are a hunting party. Not great. Uh, but Toad Von convinces them that him, the kid and the veteran are all very experienced in that, even though they aren't. And they get, you know, slightly kid up as appropriate. And by kid up, I mean, they're given like shoes and pants and a shirt. And they head off, and that's the end of chapter six. So one other thing that I'm kind of interested in here is that Toad Vine is able to convince these guys to let him join their gang. And I guess 
there isn't a lot of like argument from whoever is running this jail. <laughs> you know, they're just like, oh, you want to join this gang of criminals? <laughs> Have at it, man. And <laughs> sorry, you look like you're going to say something. No, it's just like, you know, I don't I don't think these guys are running a real tight ship. <laughs> haven't no, but, had a lot of haven't had a lot of like being charged with a crime and facing a jury hasn't been a lot of that <laughs> all true what i'm trying to say is that it doesn't matter like who you are or what circumstance you find yourself in when it comes to this band of dudes we're about to join all that matters is you saying that you're willing to do awful things. And they're like, oh, well, come on in. We're actually low a few guys. Join the join the gang. We're all just like good, basically saying who you are, what you are, wherever you come from, whatever you've done, doesn't matter as soon as you're willing to do awfulness violence is a bit egalitarian like that it truly is it truly is so chapter seven cody we've got two men in this gang which we will refer to as the glanton gang because our the leader of this gang his name is glanton okay so two men both named jackson one is black and one is white This is an important distinction only because that's about the only thing used to differentiate these two guys in the book. Yeah, they're both named John Jackson. Yes. And it may be the only thing used to differentiate them because the only thing that's important about their relationship as it pertains to the story is that you guessed it. The white Jackson doesn't like the black Jackson because he's black. Okay? As long as we have that covered, we can move on because this will come up later in the in the chapter. Okay, so the gang is on the outskirts of a city, and Glanton, the leader, is speaking with this man named Speyer, and he's negotiating the price of a bunch of these just like massive pistols. Cody, notes on these pistols at all? Uh, it's the same pistol that the young girl in True Grit had, the Colts Dragoon. It's a big boy. Oh, yeah. It was funny when a little girl had it, and now these guys are like, ah, yes, the appropriate <laughs> weapon for a guy <laughs> who kills people on horseback. Right. And so Glanton, being an absolute fucking maniac, is like, all right, I've got to test these wares. And so he's crazy. He just looks at a cat running across like this wall and just obliterates it. And it's not that like we see the remnants of the cat. It's just gone now. (laughs) Like it vanishes. So he's like, all right, that's cool. Let's see how it works on this bird. And so he just like shoots this bird that's just hanging out in the middle of this city square. And then he's like, all right, not good enough for me yet. And then shoots a goat. And then turns to this Spayer guy and he's like, you know what? I don't like the price you're asking for all these guns. Not going to pay it. So the Mexican military that is (laughs) stationed at this town comes in and is like, hey, man, 
we heard a lot of guns sh- going off and there are a lot of dead animals lying around. What gives? Everything all good? Have you seen my cat? <laughs> so Glanton clearly doesn't want to talk to these dudes, but the judge steps in and goes into this long explanation talking to this sergeant in the Mexican military about like, hey, everything's good here. Meet a bunch of these guys. Judge is able to like smooth everything over. By the end of all of this rigmarole, everything is just smoothed over and the whole militia leaves with each man carrying two of these massive pistols. At this point, we learn that the kid, Toadvine, and this veteran that they all, you know, they're all part of this kind of trio that grouped up with, they're replacing three men who were killed previously. We also have with us in this militia several people described as Delawares. So, Cody, I looked this up. The Delawares are part of a the Delaware Cherokee tribe. So not only do we have, you know, white Americans, we've got a black American, we've got Mexicans rolling with us. We also have some native people here. So it's just a smorgasbord of awful people doing evil things. As they ride on, Toadvine starts hanging out with this fugitive Welshman named Bathcat, who wears a necklace of human ears. This dude has like all these stories about when colonizers and natives would trade with each other and not kill each other all the time. And then there's this weird foreshadowing of Bathcat's death. But we continue on in our journey. It's pretty clear at this point that in every town we stop in, people are just fearful or in awe of this group of dudes. They're all coming in like fully strapped horses and everybody just doesn't like really know what to do with them. They're either like hiding in fear or out in the streets just like, what the fuck is this? It's in this town where we meet this group of traveling like circus performers kind of. It's like roadshow people. Um, So there's a man, a woman, and then a younger boy and a girl. And they've got donkeys. They want to ride with the group. Glanton's like, all right, you can pay me some money. We'll you know, take you with us. But you're in the back and I'm not promising you shit. So we stopped to camp one night and Glanton asks this juggler guy to do a bit of like fortune telling. The juggler puts a blindfold on the woman that he's with. She sits off a bit. And he has Jackson pick a card. Black Jackson. Woman chants something in Spanish, and she says that his fortune will be much the same as the whole party's. So like, ooh, spooky. What does that mean? Yeah. Then the juggler goes to the kid. Kid picks a card. Woman starts chanting again. Kid's getting weird vibes, tells the juggler to fuck off. Then the judge is finally like, hey, man, go do Glanton's fortune. So the juggler gives Glanton a card, and it disappears. Like Glanton kind of like throws it away or does some weird sleight of hand something. The juggler kind of like stumbles and falls on Glanton. And when this happens, the woman starts chanting and she says the following all in Spanish, untranslated in the book, but I'll, I'll do you the favor. So Google Translate, don't crucify me for this. The float invested card of war of revenge. I saw her without wheels on a dark river. Lost, lost. The card is lost in the night. A curse. What a wicked wind. Glanton is not having any of this. It's like, 
Really spooky shit coming from this lady. Threatens to shoot her, but the judge passes through the fire as if it's like part of him. Grabs him before he can shoot her. And then the next day, the juggler and and Glanton are like riding together and just boys. So smooth things over here. Last piece of this chapter. We make it to this town called Janos. No one seems to be there except this old woman. And to Cody's point, this old woman is just described as kind of like exhausted, poor, partially clothed, older, down on her luck kind of, but totally inoffensive, not doing anything. And Glanton approaches her on his horse. Interesting here that the horse sniffs and shivers, at which point Glanton pats the horse, gets down, and shoots the woman in the head without saying a word to her. Then he has one of his men take her scalp and they just collect it to bring back for ransom. What? Okay, so we move on. And one night, Toadvine just points out, like, hey, you know, Jackson over there, he's getting, you know, doing the dirty with the juggler's daughter in that tent. And then we end the chapter. Yeah. So fun times on the trail, I guess. Yeah, not fun times. Um, Jesus. The cl- the cl- I will say that when they when we meet the the family of traveling clowns, that was a very Charles Portis-esque scene to me. Oh, not my only God, because dude. it was literally a clown, but I was like, this interlude rules. Like, we're finally yeah. getting some, like, he's like, could you do tricks? The guy's like, fuck yeah, I can do tricks. And he just does, like, juggling, and they're like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so you want to be like, like right, we're not going to feed you, but like, yeah, come on. <laughs> Whatever. But when they're reading the um the fortune, I I also did the Google Translate and it was like a float of bones wheeled. Mm. That didn't make any sense. And so I researched it a little bit more. And apparently the context of the of the word of, of like the, the actual word that's used, like literal float, but in this context, it's hearse. Ah. And one thing that we know. That like she says before, um, Glanton almost shoots her, and then she gets cut off. When they're referring to the kid, call him Hoven, which is like you know, kid. kid. Yeah. But the last line is hearse full of bones, the young man who, and then nothing else. So she was about mm. to actually finish his fortune. It sounds like to me. Fascinating. Yeah, I thought it was that scene was really spooky, really cool different from the other ones it's like you know a lot of it is kind of like any kind of superstition or supernatural stuff has mostly been like like either like the kind of like hellfire and brimstone that we talked about last week or it's people just kind of vaguely referencing god this Mm -hmm. was like actually like some like spooky santeria stuff so that was actually pretty fun and then yeah you know these guys are just terrible people glenton just like shoots an old lady in the head and just like as like a opportunistic thing and they just get on their way just like, you know, like as a chore, like they were going to the store or something. This is the, what we were talking about earlier. Like, this is what I'm desensitized to, to a certain degree. Now, like, we got to this part and it's awful, obviously. But unfortunately, and I, you know, have to imagine that this is basically what McCarthy's kind of going for here. He's like, yeah, this kind of thing just becomes commonplace to all of these guys in this Glanton gang. And you're along for the ride. So 
it's going to start feeling more and more normal to you. And that's a problem. Yeah, I totally agree. It's just this one just seems so. And I think he frames it very intentionally. This woman is probably a vagrant, probably used in some type of sweatshop equivalent. They said she came from like the meat factory or whatever. Yeah, meat meat camp, which is basically just like a hunter's camp where they butcher and tan hides. Yeah. 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 So, you know, she's specifically described to be someone who it's like, eh, it's like, yeah, no one's going to miss her. And that's terrible. Mm-hmm. I'm almost wondering, well, w- let's come back to her in a minute because we're going to get a little bit more info on what this meat camp is too. Yeah, let's do that. So chapter eight, this is a little bit of like an interlude chapter. It's short. Uh, the kid, the Welshman and Toadvine go to a Mexican bar and drink mezcal. They're approached by a weird old dude that asks if they're soldiers. They kind of get freaked out by him because he keeps just like talking about how like he's a soldier too, spent three years in Texas. So it can be implied that he's he's got pretty good English, but he's a Mexican veteran of the Mexican-American War. He mentions how, you know, Mexico, it's a thirsty country, thirsty for people's bloods, all kinds of people. And how like basically Mexico's history is nothing but this blood, this unquenchable thirst. And they kind of leave because they're like, this place, terrible vibes. And, you know, they we get another description of like, you know, there's a kid at a blackjack table, not blackjack, Monty. They're playing three card Monty. And he's got a cut on his face. And he says, like, one of the guys at the table did it to him. And they're like, why would why wouldn't he just leave? And they're like, well, where would he go? It's like, whew, that's depressing. This is like right. maybe the only structure in this town. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> But, you know, they go back to camp, go this to bed. Town, this town is really just a bar. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those one of those towns where it's like, yeah, it's like we don't even have a, like a, like a post office, man. It's yeah. just, you know, just the, just the local dive mm-hmm. uh, where you get knifed. Um, and uh, when they break camp the next day, the judge comes over to Toadvine and he's like, hey, man, uh, the veteran's just missing. He's gone. Toadvine's like, cool, dude. Sounds like a you problem. Then the judge is like, well, I thought you spoke for your group. He's like, I speak for me. Um, and this should also be mentioned that in the last chapter, the Welshman was like kind of came up to the three guys and like, he's like, you've never really done this like hunting of people before, have you? And they're like, what gives you that impression? <laughs> he's like, oh, well, you're kind of just a bunch of morons. <laughs> and so you can kind of smell that like some of the members, maybe you're kind of sniffing these guys out as kind of frauds, but you know, they're numbers, they're people, so maybe it's helpful. Yeah, just just more fingers to pull triggers, really. Exactly, yeah. Everyone around the campfire is just hanging out. Uh, when the white Jackson won't let the black Jackson sit near him and says, if you sit by me, I'm going to kill you. And the black Jackson's like, all right, man, cool. Leaves and then comes back out of the blackness very quietly with like the biggest knife you've ever seen. And in one motion, just beheads him. Just cuts his head clean off. And there's a really gross description of the guy's blood like burning in the fire. But his body like stayed postured up, kind of like rested mm-hmm. against a rock. And everyone just like looks around and they're like, yep, that was gonna happen eventually. You know, the White Jackson's only character trait is that he's just insanely racist. Mm-hmm. It's like the only thing we know about him other than his name. Yeah. That's and that's the only reason why I started that that chapter 
chapter seven recap by basically just explaining the only characteristics we have on these guys right now is their race. And it's because it serves to show that there are, it's not like this group of guys that is very multicultural. It's not like even within this group, everything is kumbaya. So this whole, like everything going on here, it's almost like the this Glanton gang serves to some degree as like this microcosm of the greater problems that are existing outside of it as well, right? And this relationship between this black guy and this white guy serves to um, to illustrate that in a very gruesome way. Yeah, but the next day they break camp and just leave his body sitting there as some like new horror for someone else to like find one day. <laughs> just like just yeah, just sitting upright, no head, head like over there where it rolled. You know, Cody, I like hiking a lot. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, well, like you know someone's going to run into this because like, you know, okay, here's another thing about this this chapter that really kind of cemented a theme for me. Uh-huh. It's that like, so like the name of, you know, we're going to do, so this book is called Blood Meridian. What does that mean? Well, the meridian is a stretch of geographical line that goes horizontal, right? Mm-hmm. And basically what he's, what I assume he's trying to get at, and if you have theories about this, please email us at bibliotakes at gmail.com. The blood meridian is this extremely hostile portion of land on the Mexico-Texas border. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Blood Meridian because it is so hostile to humanity. And that hostility means that only a few very hard, very violent guys can survive there or even thrive there. And, you know, that connects with like what the man was saying about like Mexico being a thirsty country, thirsty for blood. Like there's no water here. So what covers the ground is people's blood. And another thing in this, you know, you, you talked about people talking about you know the god or hell vaguely right well, another thing that that guy said when they were talking to him is like he calls them fine caballeros the type that the barbaros can't hide from right but then he goes on to say but there is another caballero that no man can hide from and so part of what i'm wondering is is everybody in this story just going to end up dead? And that's partly what this, you know, maybe you can survive, maybe you can thrive in this section of land for a while. But at the end of the day, Diablo or God or whatever this guy's talking about, like you're going to meet your maker at some point, right? And it's going to be a bloody end more than likely. That's right. Okay, so I said that I wanted to go back to this woman who was shot by Glanton. And the reason I said that was because at the beginning of this chapter, we passed through this vacant meat camp that I guess she came from, right? And this camp is completely abandoned. And I don't know, Cody, I don't remember. Is it described as having, like, are there dead people there when they ride through it? Or is it just empty? I thought there were dead animals. Yeah, so definitely, you know, hides and meat still like hung up, right? So it's not like this place has been gone for that long. Part of what I'm wondering with this woman is that she experienced 
one of these just atrocities at this camp. And more than likely, when approached by these guys, she's just like, you know, dude, literally my whole life is gone now. And I'm just kind of reserved to the fact, like, if I die, I die. Mm -hmm. She doesn't say a word in this scene. And so she just kind of like turns her head when Glanton tells her to, and then she dies. Glanton kills her. So it's a weird way of like ordering things where we have this kind of like, you know, weird encounter with this mystery woman who seems to be kind of like the only person in this town doesn't make a whole lot of sense until we get to the next chapter where it's like, oh, here are the kind of like this is maybe like some breadcrumbs as to why she's doing what she's doing or is mm-hmm. the way that she is. Exactly. All right. Chapter nine. So our gang is riding at dawn and they quickly encounter a band of Apaches. So this is a just a another crazy paragraph where McCarthy's just back in his bag describing this war party and this imagery of how they're kind of being lost in this mirage almost in the desert and they're like kind of coming in and out of focus with the nature all around them which is a really interesting thing to consider where it's like the people who are doing this aren't necessarily entirely separated from the land it's another way of basically just like bringing humanity back into the natural order of things as Mm -hmm. they're doing these like atrocities, right? So anyway, these Apaches are riding at our gang and Glanton is clearly more prepared for this than Captain White had been. That's another note I had is that like Captain White was way in over his head. Just, you know, John, because we haven't heard one description of them being like overly thirsty, overly hungry, nothing, right? Mm, nope. Well, and and you know, we I think we mentioned last week how much McCarthy loves a good office scene. In retrospect, that may have been intentional. Like this Captain White guy, he's a desk jockey. This is not who you want to follow into battle. <laughs> okay. So, all right. This group of Apaches is coming down at them and they start shooting at the party. Glanton is even like basically telling all of them they're going to like bank right. Like their whole like group is going to like turn in a specific way away from their like straight up charge because they're going to turn so that they're more comfortable shooting their arrows. And so they're like anticipating this, they're shooting back at them. They kill one man and the whole rest of this gang, um, this whole war party kind of like retreats. So the judge, Glanton and Toadvine go to the body of this dead man. They take his scalp, some other stuff that the judge seems particularly interested in. And the gang moves on. Here we get more just like crazy desert sucks descriptive language as our gang keeps going. Made note of that. And it's like, I, you know, I've been to the desert before. I've never been to a place like this where they're walking across like a dried out lake and 
the sun is so intense and it's reflecting off of the what was it gypsum cody yeah gypsum it's reflecting off of the the ground so that all around them is just like this blinding white light and so they're like covering their eyes with eye black they're even doing the same to the horses but after a while a lot of the the horses are just literally going insane and so again crazy crazy descriptive language mccarthy back in his bag and it's enough to drive the reader insane okay so the delawares that had previously kind of like left this group catch back up with us they have this veteran's horse but no veteran with us once again the gang gets to a place with a bunch of dead people they find some horses there are a few guns guys in a wagon that were killed grab some of the guns and bail they arrive then at this old mine where they're like a few dudes hanging out clearly they're having a rough time one is shot in the chest their group has been like running out to like mine shit but clearly they've been you know there's been some kind of conflict you have to assume it's with the same group of apaches that we just ran into there's this really weird description of this snake bit horse that's just like grotesque and, you know, inflamed, enlarged head looks insane. Look, it feels like we're walking into just like a madhouse right now. Here, Cody, there's an interesting piece where Glanton is examining some of the ore and he gives like a geology lesson to the guys. And he's speaking about the order of things. And about how like what we currently exist in is the ordering up of things out of eons of ancient chaos. And a bunch of the dudes being, and I say this tongue in cheek, good God-fearing Christian men are like, hey man, that's not in the Bible. Yeah. The judge jumps in and he says, he's like, hey man, the words of God are spoken through the trees and the bones of things. Like you can't trust the words of some other guy in a book. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And then the judge looks at them and he's like, no, you fucking morons. Like, you're just going to believe like anything that anybody tells you. Like, what? Like, what is this? So we get this rainstorm at night. The judge is like walking around naked in the rain. And the next day they wake up clear skies. One of the guys that they ran into at the mine is like dead it's like a young boy's neck's broken just laying in the mud nobody knows what happened with him and some of these dudes are like please take us with you and glanton's like um no no <laughs> guess you guys are gross yeah party moves out as the man who is shot and dying is singing a hymn and that's pretty much the end of chapter nine they ride on and hunt, they come across a group of hunters and they pass ways and we get to chapter 10. One thing that was interesting about this is like the snake bitten horse. One thing that just like made me like very strangely sad was like the horse is snake bitten, clearly dying a slow, painful death. Its head is inflamed and like splitting open. Mm-hmm. And it tried to go over to the other horses and they all moved away from it. Because they had like, you know, that animal instinct to like avoid decrepit dying things. Yep. Just made me very sad. And like they see this happen and they're like, dude, shoot this thing. 
Mm-hmm. What are you doing keeping it alive? And they're like, well, the sooner we shoot it, the sooner it'll like go bad. It's like, brother, where do you think you are? You are in a like borderline death camp right now. It's just nothing but death all over the place. What's mm-hmm. one more horse's body that like, oh, yeah, the top half of it got rancid before we could like cook or tan the other half of it. Like This thing is actively dying. Like they, they, That's why like these guys like are so looked down upon by our group. Like, can you imagine like being so shitty that like this group of guys is like, nah, <laughs> you guys are fucked up. Cause they're, they're looking at, they're looking at, and they're like looking at each other. There's like a lot of like little moments where like these guys try to explain themselves and describe it as squatters. Like they're just like, you know, existing in this space mm-hmm. and they'll like do something or say something. And the, and the gang will just like look at each other and be like, nah, no, this is not Okay. Nothing about this is right. And so when they leave, they're like, please take us with you. And they're like, dude, no. Like, you guys have officially reached like some subhuman level that, like, when we, when this gang found the kid, Toadvine, and the veteran, they were on a literal chain gang. They were like living like animals, but for some reason had more dignity than these guys. Yeah. And I mean, it's just like the horse, like you were talking about, right? The horse is doomed and the other horses move away from it. Mm-hmm. We reach the end of our stay at this mine with these guys who are on death's door. One of them is shot. Another one was just killed in the middle of the night. We don't know why or how or who did it. And the healthy members of this group of people move away from the decrepit. You know? Yeah. So, interesting parallels. Yeah. Chapter 10. So, some nights later, uh, one of the uh, people that's in the group named Tobin um, and the kid are uh, sitting together around the campfire. Um, and the kid is like, you know, he's like futzing with some of his stuff, some of his gear. And the two begin talking about the judge um, and who Tobin is like really praising here. Um, he's talking about how like, you know, he speaks other languages, including Dutch, which he learned from a Dutchman. And, you know, he's like, they're kind of just like more talking about him as more of like this guy who's just incredibly gifted, right? Like he's just naturally good at a million things. And he says like, you know, like God allocates his gifts very disproportionately. And some people just have more natural gifts than others. It's a very kind of like old way of thinking about things. Like apparently the judge is good at like dancing and playing the fiddle. And he's like seen things all over the world. And, you know, they're talking about him and they're talking about God. And Tobin says that God uh, speaks profoundly to those who are silent and that he also speaks to like the least of his creatures. And that includes like the least of like men and humans. And the kid kind of rebuts. He's like, well, I've never heard the voice of God. And Tobin's like, well, you know, he's speaking to you and you'll actually know when he stops speaking to you. I don't know if I butchered any of that, but that's kind of what I took from it. So what Tobin says to him is God speaks in the least of creatures. Now, is that when you read that God speaks in the least of creatures, is he saying that it's like similar to what you said, like God is speaking to people or is it God speaks through certain people? I assumed it was two because of the context of the situation of like their previous conversation. and. What do we mean by least of creatures? Because we're talking about the judge here. 
And mm-hmm. the judge is supremely gifted at what sounds like virtually everything. He just has the knack of picking things up super easily. He understands stuff. He could speak a million languages, whatever, right? So is that God speaking to the judge? I and think does that yeah. mean that the judge is the least of creatures? Or I thought he was talking, talking about, about different things. I thought he was talking about the kid when he brought that up. Because he's like, look, God is clearly favoring the judge, right? But just because you don't hear him doesn't mean that God's not also talking to you mm. like street rat level person. Okay. I also took that. I, I, I don't know if you remember like there's there's like the theory of what's called like the bicameral mind where like one pretty dis- discredited theory, but an interesting one about how humans kind of came up with the idea of God or a God is that they heard their own internal monologue. Mm. And then mm-hmm. had that convince early humans because that doesn't really exist in other animals that like that was some other worldly being speaking to them. It's called a bicameral mind. It's really not re- really credible in any psychological, but it's just a very interesting way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's funny. I never questioned whether or not the kind of syntax of that was the way it was the conversation we just had, but it did. The wording of it did remind me of that. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I was probably trying too hard to make this about the judge, but I think you're right that he's just talking directly to the kid in this sense. So, yeah. Um, we get a story about how not only is the judge kind of like mentally a whiz, like he's just good at everything, like you said, but he's also just a complete badass. So th- this is the story of how the judge saved everyone's ass. So the gang was being pursued by um, a group of Native Americans. and They'd run out of all the powder for their guns. They had the i assume they had ammo of some type but they didn't have because right now we're not dealing with like what we think of as bullets importantly what they have are what's called charges which is basically a paper cylinder with gunpowder in it and you put that behind a lead ball and so when you're loading up your revolver you would put the ball and then the charge and that's what's called like charging the weapon basically so little bit of history for you there. It's 1840s or early 1850s. And so with that, they're all out of the powder, basically. And so they're being pursued. And when they found the judge basically sitting on a rock, like meditating, no canteen, only pistols, gold and silver. And, you know, he's like saying like this in like Latin, like even in Arcadia, I exist. Very weird, very like heroic angelic like finding him in the desert speaking this message you don't necessarily understand it sounds like the old testament it's it's inscribed on his gun mm-hmm. at in arcadia ego and there's tobin makes reference to this he's like yeah you know it's not that like weird for people to name their guns plenty of people do that um this is the first one i've ever heard of that's any kind of reference to one of the classics and I was like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, at In Arcadia Ego is a painting. It's a Renaissance French Baroque style painting by Nicolas Poussin. And the image, you can look it up, but it's this scene of shepherds looking or like gathered around this tomb that includes this inscription. And so, you know. Again, it's this like weird reference to to death in a way 
of like this painting showing people looking at a tomb of somebody. Yeah, it's just very strange. Um, a deputy that's in the gang, uh, David Brown, wanted to leave the judge on the rock, but Glanton was like, nah, we got to bring this guy with us. This guy's crazy. <laughs> you know, Glanton really doesn't give a shit who joins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can't, can't stress that enough. They're right now. This is kind of like a longer section, so I'm just going to kind of meander with plot. Feel free to jump in, Paul, at okay. any time. As they uh, are moving along, Glenn and the judge begin talking, and and they really like each other. They really, really hit it off. And like the judges are almost behaving like this is all you know. It's all part of the plan that I ran into you guys. Um, and he's basically like, we shouldn't be keep going in the desert. We need to take a hard turn towards these mountains. I have a plan, and they're all like, all right. Whatever you say, man, it's better than nothing. We got no plan right now. We're being chased. So they're chasing them and they're chasing them and they're catching up. And you no, know, even through all this, the judge is like being really chill about it, being a really good sport and like almost kind of like without them kind of knowing it, like encouraging them. They're flying by night to avoid the heat and trying to avoid being like picked off by sight. Um, and so the gang arrives to this cave that's full of bats and the judge is like, fuck yeah, just like I wanted. He's like, how many of you boys know stuff about chemistry? And they're just like, uh. <laughs> so guano, bat feces, has a lot of potassium nitrate in it, which is apparently a crucial ingredient in gunpowder. So over the next couple of days are basically collecting this guano. And, you know, around the area, they can kind of see like, all right, this place, the the Native Americans that are chasing us know this place could be found some guys that have been like hung and have like brutally mutilated. So we know they're going to come to us. And so they don't have gunpowder, but what they're doing is they're taking the gunpowder and like basically mixing it with charcoal, boiling it down until they have this powder and they're going to make ammo with it. So once they get to like their place where they're going to kind of set up their area, it's like this almost like volcanic terrain. The judge delivers a sermon about how the earth contains all good things in itself, like an egg. So more of this talk about the actual earth. Um, the judge mixes the nitrite, charcoal, and then sulfur from the volcanic part of the area together and then urinates on it. So this is just an absolute like concoction right now. And the guys are like, uh, Mr. Judge, are you like, do you know what you're doing right now? Like, is this going to be good? And he's like, come on, guys, we all need to pee on this. Mm -hmm. And so then they do. And with his like bare hands is mixing those described as like the foul black dough mm -hmm. and then spreads it really thin to dry. So by now, the pursuing Native Americans have arrived to them and they're like, you know, climbing up to kill the gang. They're so psyched that they have these guys cornered. The judge told the men uh, to like, give me the concoction and he chops it up into a powder and like hands it to the guys. He loads it into Glenton's pistol and does like a test fire and it makes like a weird sound, but like it works, you know, <laughs> the stuff works. The judge then basically baits the native Americans into coming all together with them and like pr by pretending to surrender and then everyone jumps on the guys and kills them with their fake gunpowder, you know, pretending to surrender. That's actually a war crime. So we get, this is the earliest <laughs> recorded one in this book. So the crew <laughs> does it all the time. And so when Tobin's story is like done, basically talking about how like the judge like got almost delivered to them and then delivered them out of their situation. 
uh, the kid is basically like, well, why the fuck is he called the judge? <laughs> what is he the judge of? Mm-hmm. And Tobin's like, dude, shut the fuck up. He's going to hear you, dude. <laughs> Don't like ever bring that up. But that's where the chapter ends. Were you were you thinking any kind of like wandering the desert for 40 days and 40 nights type stuff? Like we need a deliverer kind of deal and then the judge shows up in kind of like a weird perverted sense of some biblical story oh yeah, as you're reading time. this our gang is like being you know chased by people who want them dead and then out of nowhere as if just like sent down by the Almighty himself is this guy just sitting on a rock. And somehow, this dude not only is like super willing to join your very much losing cause, but knows exactly what to do to get you out of it. It's like, this seems like some weird, twisted, like, Moses fleeing Egypt story. Yeah. Very strange. And then, I mean, I think that that whole take is supported by the fact that, you know, much like in the Exodus story, Moses is, you know, all of the plagues and everything, it's all natural phenomena, right? Like we have locusts and famine and all of that kind of thing. We're turning water into blood in the Nile and we're we're splitting the sea. So it's very terrestrial. Mm-hmm. Similarly, the judge is using everything at his disposal from this egg of an earth he describes to save these men from their impending doom. I was just like, this, where the fuck did this guy come from? Right. It's really crazy. And I, and I kept kind of like, as I was reading the book, I was like, where are we going with this? Like, how's he going to do it? And it's like, it turns out like his intelligence, like even goes to like very like early chemistry. And so it's just like deep. And it's like, he's got this, he's clearly a very, like, he has a very strong humanities education, right? Mm-hmm. The Arcadia name of his gun, the languages, but he also has this very advanced hard science understanding and they seem very woven together, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the natural, like the earth, the science, the hard, the facts, they exist in tandem with like this kind of like philosophical view of the earth. But he's content to just be in a gang that kills people and does violence. One of the things when we were talking about No Country for Old Men with my dad, and I'm sure we're going to talk to him more about this, is similarities between Anton Sugar and the judge in this story. Okay, we're going to get more into the judge as we keep reading. So, But one of the things is like, I can't help to think about the judge as simply just an angel of death in this. Supremely powerful, knows everything about everyone, and uses his know-how, his intelligence, to wreak havoc wherever he can. But not only that, I think one of the more interesting parts about the judge is that everyone is seemingly just smitten by him. Mm Mm-hmm. Like we had the scene earlier in this section where he's smoothing things over with the Mexican military and the Glanton gang, right? And everybody's just kind of friendly and boys, and we go on with a successful deal for pistols afterwards, right? 
In this section, it's like, nobody wants him there. And all it takes is him riding with Glanton for a few miles, and they're immediately boys. So it's this weird kind of like Lucifer-ish kind of like worming into things and also just having all of the all of the knowledge possible in any given situation and then choosing to do evil fascinating character yeah and like we said like at an arcadia ego like you said is the painting but arcadia having like briefly looked this up is like what was once described as like an early utopia of greece like basically this like very sparsely populated not necessarily very warring part of Greece that was like all farms people living in like for the ancient world relative harmony and so if the phrase even in arcadia i exist means something it's that like, even in this place that can be described as like an idyllic portion of the ancient world i am here what would that be we can assume it's death right 100% yep and like the idea that like you know no matter where you go no matter how good things may seem there can be death and like you know arcadian utopia if it's a garden utopian you can think of like even like you know like the garden of eden like even in the garden of eden there was a devil you know no doubt yep and so i really think you're 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 smack you're you've hit it smack on the head about him kind of being this almost like devilish fixture because the devil's never described as like you know he's described as like having like these like ugly features but the reason the devil is like bad is because he's really charming yeah it should always be a key right like he he, how like if the the phrase silver tongue devil for a reason exactly like if he if the devil was this guy that was just hideous and everyone hated all the time then no one would be doing sin because how can the devil convince you to do anything if he's not persuasive if he's not charming He's mm-hmm. not like attractive. Yep. So this yep. this this character, like you said, like it really is, and like, the way that the 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 men consider him in this like like almost like you know angelic fashion, but they're afraid of him. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, don't 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 talk about that. Don't 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 like ask that one question. Like, it's not right. like they're like, oh yeah, go ask him. He's a great guy. They're like, ooh, like be careful, be careful around him. Totally. Yeah. Oh man. So you know, all things said. This section didn't seem to like move our plot forward a ton. You know, where we pick up is mostly where we leave off at the end of this, right? We join the Glanton gang. We're still with the Glanton gang. We're down a couple members at this point. But like for the most part, nothing's really happened other than the fact that we can assume there are a bunch of Apaches on the tail of the Glanton gang right now. Mm-hmm. So moving forward, that conflict is likely going to happen. But for right now, it's it's mostly just, you know, a very Lord of the Rings-esque section of reading where a lot of it is just, just walking. walking around. Place we're, sucks. Just, we're walking, baby. We're, and we're it in, sucks. We're literally in Mordor. <laughs> oh, yeah. In this section, we found a volcano. <laughs> That's right. We literally did. You know, one thing before, Cody, before I um, we get to our best and worst, our beans and whatever... Um, you human know, misery. Yeah, you human know. misery suits your fancy for that week. One thing I, I also was thinking and, and just, just remembered, we like to think, uh, I think a lot of times, you know, in the 
Garden of Eden scene, the devil is like the original corrupter. Everything's fine until he gets there. Mm-hmm. An interesting difference here is that the Glanton gang was already out trying to ransom scalps. So it's not like this was just a group of shepherds before the judge showed up. Mm-hmm. And so it's an interesting thing that this character who's very demonic is just kind of like tagging along with this bunch of guys who didn't need any encouragement from him to do evil things. No, but he does give them the push to like continue. And and the ability to by keeping them alive. Right. Right. Yeah. And like and I and I'm I'm being more and more convinced of his like, you know, demonic traits. Like when you said like to stop Glenton from killing the woman doing witchcraft, he like goes through the fire as if it's nothing. Huh. Do we need to take a second to actually find that passage? Because it's kind of bizarre. Go ahead. Here's the passage. The judge, like a great ponderous djinn, stepped through the fire and the flames delivered him up as if he were in some way native to their element. Hmm. 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 McCarthy. Little little breadcrumbs scattered Hmm. along the ground for me and Cody to follow. We're following the trail. <laughs> All right, dude. What are what's your um what's your atrocity of the week? Atrocity of the week. Uh yeah. the atrocity of the week is uh the description of that camp that they come on with the squatters and the horse. Just yeah. gross. Ugh. 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 Just give me the shivers. Hated it. Couldn't agree yeah. more. Um that really for me, it's like anytime that our party stops, okay? It's like Things are bad enough just from like a nature standpoint when we're riding our horses through the desert. Things are tough. Mm -hmm. When we stop places, though, that like the human suffering really picks up. That's right. And so it's like whether, you know, it was that group at the, the mine, whatever, with the squatters or, you know, oh, my gosh, the this woman that we ran into in town or the guy who got stabbed playing three card Monty, like every time we stop somewhere, I'm just like, please let this not be the worst thing I've ever read. And it almost always is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I agree with you there. What's your beans of the week? Uh, The clown family. Great stuff. I love the card reading scene and I thought they were funny. Great stuff. Love it. I'm here for that. Yeah. I, mine is um, just getting to know more about the judge and digging into yeah, more totally. of like what he's all about. And part of the reason for that is just anticipation on my behalf, because like I've I've talked to my dad about this book a little bit, didn't spoil anything for me, but he mentioned this judge character. And so getting more into him has been super, super interesting. Yeah, it's great. And that's one thing I love about talking about these books with you is because it really helps me kind of synthesize some things I have. Like I'll even like, you know, notice things here or there, won't think anything of them, but then you'll bring up maybe like a third thing and mm-hmm. it will just be the catalyst I need to kind of like make an idea about it. And like I even in like talking about him today, like I always thought like, you know, the judge, interesting guy, cool guy. The story's really weird, but I think we really come along with some cool ideas just chit-chatting about it. Likewise, it's like you've got two points and you're connecting a line, but you need one more to kind of like make that full kind of like encompassing almost like triangle around a guy. Yeah. 
if that the, makes any shape. Sense. Yeah. You have right. points, you have data points. You're doing like kind of like a like a paint by numbers or connect the dots. Like sometimes you just need them to be ordered in the right way for you to be like, oh yeah. Yeah. Right. Now I'm making a shape. Yep. Yep. I feel the same way, dude. Okay. Next time we're reading chapters eleven through fourteen. So looking forward to keeping going with this. Uh, until next time, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Bibliotheques Podcast. We'll see you all soon.